You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC Sports. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com, the go-to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley, listening to the Inside Carolina podcast, sponsored by Johnny T-Shirt, JohnnyTShirt.com. Take a moment to rate us, review us, subscribe on YouTube and Spotify and Apple Music and all your podcast ways. The YouTube channel is pretty cool. We get to have a little fun with the YouTube version of these podcasts. And of course, it's Thursday. And that means there's a game plan podcast. Greg Barnes, third straight week of game plan podcast. I feel like we're setting a record in 2020. What saith you on how it's gone down to this point? Tommy, are you are you trying to curse this whole ordeal? I mean, eventually, I still I, I I took the under on six straight ball games. So yeah. we got to do something. Right. Well, if I was superstitious, then then that might mean something to me. But um, <laughs> I know you're a betting man, though, so I'd like well, to know well, whether you took the over/under as well. <laughs> yeah, that's a different question. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, when you see what's kind of going on with the SEC, I think you find that that no one is immune, right? And um, it's really a matter of because of the way these schedules are, are set up, the ACC is is. Uh, had to shift things to the end of the year. And so the next time it pops up, which undoubtedly it will in the ACC, that's going to be a problem. Uh, North Carolina has, has done what it needs to do, and I think they've taken it very seriously. Um, we know that you know, BC, for example, has. Jason can fill us in on, on how Florida State has taken it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're, you just kind of – you go day to day, and, and you, you see if you can advance. And – I'm fascinated to see what happens with the Pac-12 and the Big Ten. Uh, they just have no wiggle room built into those schedules. Uh, it seems like a recipe for, for some problems, but we'll have to wait and see. But but thus far, uh, North Carolina, while they've had some issues, uh, they've had a pretty good string here, and, and hopefully uh, we talk again next week after three straight ballgames. Absolutely. That brings us to Carolina and Florida State. I guess it's now on ABC at 730. Um, benefits from COVID issues. Right. It moves to the uh, the old antenna, antenna television stations. It works from North Carolina. Jason, Carolina going to Florida State in a primetime matchup, 7.30 on a Saturday night. Oh, how things have changed. Carolina goes into this one. What's the line now? 13 and a half, something like that as we record this podcast. Jason, we all know your ties to Florida State. Um, just briefly, how, how is it? How is it over there? <laughs> so it's a, it's a legit rebuild. And uh, I think the last two coaches who got in were both surprised by how much work there was to do. And uh, also just in terms of the organizational structure from the top down, uh, things, are, things, things have not been in the best order. And uh, then that has worked its way into the, into the team. They're still trying to flip the culture there. Uh, and, you know, Mac Brown will tell you how important that is. I mean, he understands culture about as well as any coach in the game. Uh, and that's one of the things that they were able to do in his first year is really get guys in line and, and aligned in, in, in a unified team culture that, that was going to value the kind of work uh, that is necessary and to be able to live up to the standard. And that's something that you hear Mac Brown talk about is that, that you've got to live up to the standard that he has seen. He's, you know, he'll flash that ring and say, look, I know what it takes to get here. And you've got to actually, you've got to live to this standard to get there. And those, those players have bought in at Carolina. At Florida State, it's not, it's not quite, quite so easy right now. Uh, and they took over a, a pretty divided and very me first locker room that had been even more me first previously. Uh, and there's, there are a lot of roster holes that are surprising when you look at it from, uh, from someone who knows where Florida state has been and where Florida state was five years ago. I mean, it's just, it's been amazing to watch them really uh, 
stumble all over themselves the last five, six years as that program is sort of cratered. And I do think that we've seen with this current staff, with, uh, with what Mike Norvell has done, there's been some progress over the first couple of weeks on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, but you can still see a lot of, a lot of seams and a lot of issues, both personnel wise and culture wise that, that it shows that, you know, it's not a quick fix in Tallahassee. It's not something that they can just flip the switch and suddenly they're nineties Florida state. It's going to, it's going to be a while. And Greg, I asked Jason that question because it relates to this game particularly, but not only that, what Matt Brown is trying to build at North Carolina. Yes, they're ranked fifth in the nation. Uh, you know, whether or not you believe they're the fifth ranked team, they're the fifth ranked team. Um, but how quick, A, how quick things can change and go south. I don't think they go north as fast as they can go south. Um, but also in, in, you know, relation to this game specifically, if you read inside Carolina message boards and you look across the, the thing, everybody sees the line and just assumes North Carolina, uh, you know, is going to waltz in and, and whip Florida State. And so let's get into the nuggets of this one. Um, a, Mac Brown has probably preached all week, Greg, and I want your opinion on keeping his guys focused. How difficult do you think that is for Brown and his staff to do, given where North Carolina's come from? When, you, when, when you're Alabama or whatever, and I'm not comparing Carolina to Alabama, but using it, the culture's there, the expectations are there, and they've worked to get them there. At Carolina, they're fifth. Um, what does Brown have on his hands to try to keep his guys grounded and focused in this sort of meteoric rise that we're seeing for Carolina football? I actually don't think that's as big of an issue this week, Tommy, because I think when the players look at the film, uh, they see athletes. And FSU, while the stats may not be there, uh, there's talent. And so I, I really think that just in, in talking with some of the players earlier this week, but they respect what Florida State has, uh, personnel-wise. I think that's a big part of it. You know, if you start looking at you know, Syracuse and even Boston College to an extent, you can say, eh, okay, you know what, they're, they're pretty solid, but uh, we've got more skill than they have, or we have more athleticism than they have. I don't, I don't think that's a possibility with Florida State. Um, and so I think that's kind of a big part of it. I also think that that highlights where these programs are at, right? I mean, number one – Quarterbacks are crazy important. Uh, posted a story on Thursday, just kind of revisiting Sam Howell's recruitment. And I mean, is Sam Howell's in Tallahassee right now? I mean, yeah, there's a lot of cultural uh, issues within the locker rooms that have to be addressed, but uh, that makes up for a lot of the issues. And uh, so quarterback is, is a big component of it. The other aspect is – because Mac Brown has, has been in Chapel Hill for a year, um, you know, this is a team that was seven and six last year. I think people forget that. You have to learn the culture. You have to learn how to win. North Carolina didn't know how to do that. They're still, they're still learning that, of course. Uh, they haven't put together, I don't think, really a full four-quarter game, which they need to improve upon. Um, and I think that's why some people are hesitant to say that they're you know, number five in the country. But they're learning. It's on a positive trajectory. Um, as you say, it may be meteoric, uh, but it's, it's on the right track. And uh, to Jason's point, I think Norvell's a good coach. He has a good track record. Um, is he yet to the point where things are kind of moving up? I don't know. Uh, we'll we'll kind of have to wait and see how that plays out. But I think that's the key difference. You've got a quarterback that stands above the rest, and then you have the culture dynamic. It's not a talent issue. It's not an athleticism issue. Uh, it's more kind of the mental component of college football. Yeah, and, and I'm going to build on this just a little bit because this is something that's worth thinking about just from both, from both programs' side. And this is I've, – I've, it's been – there were about three years there where I, where I was covering both Florida State and, and UNC, and the programs were on – they were almost in lockstep. I mean, you could I, – I hardly had to watch both games because you could, you could basically diagnose the same problems. And it was like, what, how, how has this happened that you could watch the exact same thing in two programs that way? And a lot of it does trace right to one position, and it's the most important position in team sports. The quarterback position matters more than any other position in team sports. And that's one of those things where you look at what happened at North Carolina. They had Bryn Renner, pretty good player. 
right? And then they moved to Marquise Williams, who wasn't quite ready that first year, but they were still okay, and he's a pretty good player. Then Marquise got better and was a good, was a good player his, his senior year. And then they moved to Trubisky, and it looked like the program was really building. Well, the reason the program was looking good was because they had guys that, that were under center that were, that were quality players, good college quarterbacks, and one pro quarterback out of those guys. And, you know, I know Bryn also played some, and, and Marquise did uh, not in the NFL. But, I mean, all, all three of those guys at least got a paycheck, right, <laughs> playing the position. That means you're not, they're not sticking some stiff out there. All three of those guys could play. And then what happened after Trubisky? <laughs> God. Do we want to talk about those years? No, I mean, not not, none of us do. We don't <laughs> want to talk about that today. And the same thing has happened at Florida State, which is, I mean, it's amazing because they had, you know, a guy who's made a reputation for putting guys in the first round at the quarterback position in Jimbo Fisher. And he couldn't, he just could not get another quarterback on campus at the level that they needed to before he left. And then Taggart wasn't able to actually, this, this is something that's still mind blowing to me. In two classes at Florida State, Taggart didn't sign a quarterback out of high school. How do you do that? I mean, I, yeah, okay, so, so you miss on Sam Howell. You'd better have somebody else that's on the, that, that, you, that, you can, that you can, you know, move down your list and go, okay, we can at least, you know, we've got a second quarterback here. And that's something, again, you look at Mac Brown, they're regularly recruiting more than one quarterback. Because in this day and age, you better have more than one because one guy might transfer anyway. So you better load that roster with guys that can throw. And you look at the, at the, at the history of Florida State going back to, to Winston. Winston left after his, sophomore, his redshirt sophomore year in 2014, and Jake Coker was going to be the next guy. He, tra- he had transferred to Alabama and then won a national title at Alabama. But in his place, they wound up with a transfer, Everett Golson. Eh. Right? Sean McGuire, who was recruited to be a career backup, essentially. He was an emergency guy. Then DeAndre Francois as a freshman, and he had a number of issues that we're not going to get into. Then Blackman after Francois got hurt. Then Francois again, but a shell of himself after his injury. And then Blackman again. And you're looking at, well, there's your reason why Florida State's had so much trouble. They've not been good at quarterback since 2014. I mean, Francois was okay at quarterback in 2016 and then won the Orange Bowl. So the quarterback position matters a lot. And uh, as you said, and all of a sudden you get Sam Howell at, 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 uh, at North Carolina and you go from the post-Trubisky desert to all of a sudden top five in the country this week. It's amazing what a difference one position can make. And part of that is because when you've got a quarterback that can play and has the respect of his teammates and is one of those guys that is the, that that does the right things on and off the field and is a film junkie and demands that guys meet that standard the team takes on the characteristics of its quarterback teams take on the character and the culture of the guy under center who then ideally is delivering the character and culture of your head coach and that actually, by the way, if you want to go back to the Winston era, is one of the reasons that Florida State's culture started going downhill is that when Winston became the team leader in 2014, he was not the, he did not live to the same level of accountability as some of the, the, the prior leaders had in 2012 and 2013. And when you have a guy that's not an accountability guy at, at quarterback, well, that affects your team culture. And then he leaves and you don't have the talent there to make up for it. And there you go. So you combine all that, and it's really been interesting for me to watch these programs and learn really a lot about how programs are built and how, you know, what, what gets coaches in trouble and all of these things, and also watch how masterful Mac Brown has been. In underst- it's very clear he understands every single thing about how a program is built and how it has to work in order for things to progress into the right culture and to have the pieces in place to win. And he's been able to, to do that, starting with Howell, with, with getting Howell. Although I think with Reuter, and, uh, they, they would have been in pretty good hands as w- already. But the fact that they've got – I think North Carolina right now has, four, has three quarterbacks on their roster that might be starting at Florida State this week. I don't disagree with you. Uh, and and that, that's, a, that's an indictment. Now, FSU has uh, Chubba Purdy, 
who hurt his shoulder in, in, in fall camp. They were trying to give him some live reps just because like they didn't have spring. They didn't have any, they're, they're, this is a freshman. They got to get him ready. They were hoping he was going to be the guy and he separated a shoulder in camp. If he's healthy, he might be a starter maybe over one of those guys from Carolina. Maybe, you know, maybe he wins out over, you know, over Criswell as a freshman, but I'm not sure he would. And I think otherwise Carolina probably has three quarterbacks who start at Florida state this week. Yeah, it's amazing how much, uh, how quickly times change. Greg, <laughs> how much, and this is sort of a holistic thing, Mac Brown obviously has a wealth of coaching experience. We've talked about it ad nauseum, but how much was his time with ABC and ESPN and all that getting able to see? He's spoken to it a little bit, but I want you to speak on it to get to see bits and pieces of every program in the country. And how much do you think he's pulled from that experience? to do what he's done at Carolina. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think there's any question that he did that. Um, and I think one of the, the big things for Mac, um, you know, all of us do this, right? You, you're chugging along, you're doing whatever you do, and you get into a rut. Um, and, and Mac, I think that happened to him at Texas. Uh, had a lot of success early. Uh, first decade was, was fantastic. And then after that, you know, after Colt McCoy leaves, uh, they kind of had some struggles for the next couple of years, which, which ultimately, ultimately led to his departure. Um, so what, what happens is that he goes and he does media. He kind of takes a break. He, he refreshes. He goes to all these uh, games. He talks with coaches. He, he starts to, be, to realize kind of how the game has changed, uh, what works best in terms of interactions with players. I mean, he's talked about that. that Coaches talk to players differently now than they did 20 years ago. Uh, it's just kind of an evolution. Uh, and that also goes with your schemes, right? And so I think that's, that's kind of a big part of it as well. Um, and so he's able to go and look at how different guys are doing different things. Uh, we always talk about, you know, back when he was at North Carolina the first time, he didn't really like how the defense was playing, right? So he goes to Carl Torbush and he's like, look, you know, this has got to change or, or else I'm going to have to make a move with my coordinator position. Torbush changes things up. They're more aggressive. Uh, and we see how that finished up. So he, he's had that proclivity to, to make changes when necessary, but being able to step away for so long, uh, you kind of get a, as you said, a holistic, more of a general 30,000-foot view of how things are taking place. And I think one of the most important things in that is when he was away, he was able to enjoy the game in a different way because it wasn't dependent upon wins and losses. He could just enjoy the sport. And so he, he brought that up after, I guess it was the BC game, uh, that really it was a situation where you, if, if at Texas, if they had won that game being such big favorites, he's probably ticked off after the game, and he wasn't happy about it. And so he's really kind of changed things and said, hey, look, we won the game. I don't care if we won by one point or 100 points. Uh, we're going to celebrate tonight. We know we have things to work on. And by doing that, it's really kind of built up the morale of the program. And the players are like, well, you know, we know we have things to work on, but, hey, we won. That's, that's the key to this game. Uh, and so a lot of different things have kind of gone into what he wanted. Uh, but, but Jason just mentioned this in our little chat here. I mean, he went around the country, and what did he like better than anything? Lincoln Riley's offense at Oklahoma. And that's what he wants in, in Chapel Hill. And uh, thus far this year, it looks, looks pretty similar. Greg, let me stay with you one second. You mentioned, you know, Brown's approach to the players and all, and I thought it was interesting that he discussed that with you directly about the penalties. And I think that's a difference. And rather than embarrassing a kid or blowing a kid out or doing that in front of the kid, he approached the penalty situation a little different than maybe. I mean, did that surprise you that he addressed that specifically in his press conference? Uh, well, it shows that he's alert. And the fact that he's watching the player interviews after the fact kind of tells you that he's in tune with, with how things are being portrayed in the media, which is important. Um, but in terms of the way he handles penalties, it was a big deal when Larry Fedora came in that, hey, this is the Tar Hill Circle. You know, it was the Eagle Circle when we were at Southern Miss. This is how we do it. This is how we make people, hold people uh, to their responsibilities, hold them accountable, all these kind of things. If you go back to Roy Williams, when he first came back to Chapel Hill, uh, when everything had kind of blown up under Matt Darty's last year, Roy Williams was open years later. You know, it wasn't a year later like Mac has been, but years later he's like, look, 
I couldn't, I couldn't handle those guys as hard as I would in my Kansas teams. I had to handle them with, with gentle gloves, right? Um, you, you've got to be very careful because their egos are so fragile. They've been through so much uh, losing and, you know, there's lots of infighting in with that program. So he had to build up confidence in the guys. Hey, I know what I'm talking about. This is how we're going to do it. And once he gained their trust, then he became a hard ass. And that's exactly what Mac Brown said. He said, look, we may have done something differently with penalties at Texas, but these guys had won five games in two years when I came to Chapel Hill. So we can't be as hard on them initially you know, because of that. We have to build up trust with the coaching staff. We have to make them understand what we're looking for. And as we build up that trust and as we have success and as they see that what we're teaching works, now all of a sudden we can be a lot tougher and we can be more harsh with the guys and we can call them out and hold them accountable in a, in a tougher way. Uh, and that's really what stood out to me is you know, kind of the comparisons between a Roy Williams and a Mac Browns. There's a lot of similarities there in how they approach things. And I think that really speaks to why the guys have, have bought on and bought in so quickly. I mean, Mac's been here for 22 months now, and it seems like he's been here for five years. Yeah. Jason, last question on this before we flip to the game itself after the break. I mean, we always talk about player led culture or player led leadership. Um, but this, this team, this North Carolina team specifically, seems like it's really coach-led. I know the players are leading, right, and they've bought in. But Mac has been, at least from the outside looking in, and I want your take on it, he's been the guy that everybody's circled around. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, it is. But the thing is, whenever anybody talks about coach-led versus player-led um, teams, a – I think it's a little bit of a false dichotomy because the objective of the, of a good coaching staff is to lead their team into a position where the coach no longer has to impose his culture and his personality on the team. So the coach has to, has to lead it, but the objective of a good leader is to have it so that you're not having to lead by fiat and by, uh, you know, force of will and declaration and, and punishment. And, and so you see Matt Brown's fingerprints all over this North Carolina team. I mean, it has taken on very much his persona more and more as, as he's been in, in, in Chapel Hill. And I agree with Greg. It seems, feels like he's been here five years already. Uh, and that's what you want. But he is leading through the, basically a group of, of, of team leaders that embraced what he had to sell. And, you know, the thing is, when you get, when you don't have player-led teams, what you essentially have at that point is a team that's at war with its coach. A coach who has, who is actually leading the team and has the control of the culture is leading through player leadership. That's the way it has to work. It's the only way it works at this level. And the better the team gets, the more those older guys who've been in the program under that coach three, four years, five years at a, at a given point, the more those guys are just, they're extensions of the coach. And you can hear it in some programs. I mean, you interview, you, you, you interview guys from, from, uh, from Alabama and they all sound like mini Sabins. They're all talking about the process and about how we, you know, this and that. And, it, it, and that's what you want is you want that to become an extension of you. Now I do what, before we go to break, I want to pose an interesting hypothetical that I'm not sure everybody knows about. And, and, and actually I'm not even sure that everybody knows the first part about this. So, um, <laughs> so Mac Brown, of course, is, is an alum, is an alum of Florida state who played at Florida state. A lot of people don't know that. I mean, I think even a lot of North Carolina fans don't know that. And that's something that Mac and I have kind of chuckled about. Uh, chatting ourselves and that we both have mutual North Carolina, Florida state roots. And we both love both places uh, though. We both have become much more settled in, 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 you know, in our personal lives and family lives, much more settled in North Carolina. And that's just, you know, that is what it is. Um, you know, anyway, the, the, the hypothetical here is that back when Jimbo Fisher left Florida state. Uh, <laughs> so, they, they hired Willie Taggart, as everybody knows. Mac Brown contacted them through back channels saying, hey, what, you know, 
what, what, what would you uh, would you consider me? Here's an interesting hypothetical of what these programs look like if Mac Brown had taken the Florida State program the year Willie Taggart did, and then of course he's off the market when when North Carolina ma- when North Carolina makes a, a change, and whether he would have the same amount of success at, at Florida State as he's had it at North Carolina so far in changing things or not. That's a fascinating sort of hypothetical. And I, I, I can tell you this from the North Carolina side, got to be really, really, really happy that Florida State, that the Florida State brass were like, nah, we're not really interested in that. And you know, so on. But, but Mac actually, by the way, was, uh, was roommates with one of my old coaches at Florida State when he was at Florida State. He, he roomed with Billy Sexton, who was the longtime Florida State uh, running backs coach and walk-on coordinator when I was there. So, uh, so yeah, there's, there's some interesting history here. And that also means a lot of people don't realize that that's another reason why Mac, this game is always going to carry just a little bit extra for Mac. Mm-hmm. When, when Mac plays Florida State, there's just a little bit more there because it's not just, an, it isn't just another team for him. He did, I mean, he wasn't there for four years, but he graduated from there. He played there. And there are some, some roots and attachment there to some degree, even though they've, you know, over time diminished as, as happens when you get older and when you coach and you're at all sorts of different places. But you can guarantee that Mac is going to, that there's always a little extra juice in this one that Mac want, Mac want, you want to, you want to beat your alma mater, dang it. (laughs) So there's going to be no detail left unturned, you know, and and there normally isn't, but even more so in a week like this. Tommy, here's a random anecdote speaking to kind of what Jason's touching on there. Uh, And in researching that 97 game judgment day between FSU and Carolina, Burt Reynolds, that week was actually in Wilmington filming a movie uh, and him and Mac Brown kind of went back and forth and Bert was sending him some stuff through the mail uh, just to kind of, I guess, give him grief. But that was something I randomly came upon. They didn't play together, but Mm-mm. both of course played running back. Roughly the same era. And, uh, and Bert of course used to come around when I was playing all the time. He'd, you know, walk through the football facility, chewing his gum in the, in, in a big, uh, leather Florida state jacket. And that's you know, where the gold came from, right? It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. So some fun stuff there. There's a lot of, there's more connections between these programs than people realize. And, you know, obviously John Lilly was, was a coach at Florida state when I played there as well. And, uh, and he, he, he is, uh, you know, there's a lot of strong ties there between Lilly who, who was at Florida state for, I think 15 years, roughly, uh, under Mark Richt, uh, on that offensive staff. And, you know, one of the other things, one last thing here, uh, Mac reminds me a lot of my coach of, of Bobby Bowden. And, and I've, and I've talked to him about that and he said, Oh, that's deliberate. <laughs> yeah, he definitely you know, loves Bobby. He's modeled a lot of the way that he's approached the game and the way that he's approached leadership on the way that uh, on, on a lot of stuff from Bobby earlier on. So uh, this is something that, you know, that, and that of course, makes it really, really, it, ma- it makes me much more inclined to really like uh, Mac as well. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of ties, uh, a lot more ties between those, these two programs than people realize. It's an interesting matchup. We'll talk more about it, the actual game on the other side. Yeah, I think Mac said in one of his interviews this week that he's, one of his pictures in his office is from the, a field shot of the judgment night. Still remains the best, best atmosphere I've seen in the college football game especially in person. If COVID ever ends, that's going to change here soon because Carolina is going to be at that, at that elevated level again. There's going to be games like that. There's going to be more than one game like that in Chapel Hill. Yep, indeed. If COVID ever ends, maybe soon. <laughs> Let's talk about Johnny T-Shirt. JohnnyT-Shirt.com, uh, certainly sponsors of this podcast, sponsors of Inside Carolina, and great friends of Inside Carolina premium subscribers because you get 10% off your order. They've got the soccer stuff on sale. I got an email today. It said men's and women's soccer. They're both top five programs, I believe. They've got football jerseys, basketball, Mm. anything you need, absolutely. Uh, It's Christmas season, ridiculously, mid-October, and I actually Christmas shop today, which is – I should – something should happen to me for doing that in October. But at any rate, Johnny T-shirts available for you both in person. If you're in town for a football game, state game next weekend, go see them or shop online. They'll bring it straight to your door. Great friends. And that 10% off. Take another break. Let the national guys pay the bills. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Game Plan. Tommy Ashley, Jason Staples, and Greg Barnes. See you on the other side. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. 
And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, we're back. Game plan podcast, Florida State week. Jason Staples, of course, always here with the added bonus of the Florida State uh, tent to his uniform, pregame uniform. He has since changed his uniform to the right tent. Greg Barnes with me as well. Greg, I'll start with you on this. Let's talk about this matchup specifically. And, and we said it offline and we said a little bit. A lot of people think this is a walk-in in park for North Carolina. Uh, I don't see it. I'm Charlie Brown, and Lucy's got the football um, with Carolina football. But tell me why let, – let's do it this way. What does a Carolina win look like, Greg, from the offensive standpoint, in your opinion? Well, I think the – Jason will be able to give us a, a very accurate breakdown, obviously. So I'll just give you some, some general high-level stuff. Florida State has struggled a lot to get pressure on the quarterback. Uh, North Carolina has done a very good job protecting Sam. And when Sam is protected, he has time to throw. He's been lethal this year. And I think that's, uh, that's the problem. Uh, when Sam Howe has time to operate, uh, that opens up the passing game and therefore it opens up the run game. And good luck. And I am not sure that Florida State has the offensive firepower uh, to counter that. And so I think, I think if this one gets away from Florida State, it's going to be in a shootout. Um, but in terms of, you know, North Carolina is going to inch away 49 to 31. Uh, I don't think it's going to be like that. I think North Carolina is going to uh, play good defensively. I don't think North Carolina is going to have a ton of success, uh, as much success as they did against Virginia Tech uh, offensively. I think Florida State will show up because this is a primetime game. But I think North Carolina has a significant advantage offensively. I don't think North, uh, Florida State can match that. And so – this is one of those games. I think it's going to be right at the, the point spread. Uh, but you, to your point, Tommy, Florida State's got talent. North Carolina knows that. Uh, you know, if you're looking for issues, Carolina's got too many penalties. Carolina's not forcing turnovers. So those are some areas where if, if those flip in Florida State's favor, those are avenues for Florida State to be able to slip in and, and make this a lot closer game than what a lot of people think. Jason, you follow both teams very closely. Um, tell me what – Florida State can do to sort of take advantage of what Virginia Tech was able to do against North Carolina, especially Virginia Tech's offense. I mean, is Florida State capable of um, building on those things that Virginia Tech exposed? Yeah, this is interesting. You know, it's there's going to be a lot of things that, that Florida State will do, especially in the running game, that are very similar to what Virginia Tech did. Uh, you got to remember that Fuente came from Memphis and Mike Norvell followed Fuente at Memphis. And a lot of the, and even though they didn't overlap, a lot of the run game concepts and things that they do, there's some similarities there. Uh, and this is, I, this is something I talked to Jay Bateman actually uh, over the, during the off season, basically he's, he's coached against Norvell in the past. And I, I talked to him just asking him, what his, what his impressions were about that in the past. And he said, well, Norvell is really good at finding ways of making it, of, of manufacturing a run game. He can find all sorts of creative ways to run the football. Uh, and then as I've studied Norvell's offense, some I've seen that in spades, no doubt. He, they do a lot of different creative stuff up front to, to give you different looks to tweak a blocking scheme just a little bit here to, to, to take advantage of, you know, if you, if you align this way, they'll, they'll block it this way. If you align this way, they'll block it another way. 
or they'll package concepts together to run this against this front that you run and then this against another front that you run so that they're, they're giving themselves a lot of opportunities. And the other thing is that the other similarity between the programs right now is that Virginia tech is very uh, dependent on the running, running quarterback on, on 11 man running game, running the quarterback as well as the, as the running backs to get that numbers advantage. And right now, Florida state with Jordan Travis that's, that's basically what they are. Uh, Jordan Travis is basic. You have to th- think of Jordan Travis as an option quarterback. He does not throw the football very well in the intermediate areas. Uh, he really is only a threat to throw if, he, if, if he's on play action, throwing deep down the field where he has had some success this year, uh, particularly to Tamori and Terry, who's not going to play in this game. With the, uh, he, he just had uh, arthroscopic knee surgery to, to fix something. Um, but uh, he, he's had some success going over the top, but aside from a play action down the field thing or, you know, rolling out and making or scramble and make, make a play where he's running and then is able to, to throw it down the field on the move. He's not had a whole lot of success throwing the football and he's unlikely to, he just is not accurate enough. He doesn't have the strongest arm to be able to drive the ball down the field in the intermediate areas. So you kind of have to think of him as a more traditional option quarterback where you can't let him beat you deep. You know, those old Nebraska teams, for example, they'd have a quarterback who would run, 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 and then all of a sudden pull back and throw over the top. And that's basically what their passing game was. And that's what Florida State's basically been is they'll quick game you a little bit, you know, stuff out on the, on the perimeter with some, some screen game and stuff like that and some deep shots, but really what they're trying to do is break you down in the running game by using angles and the quarterback run game to, to, uh, to cause some problems for you up front. And that's what North Carolina just faced in Virginia tech. Uh, and so it's a very similar matchup in that respect. I think actually though, Virginia tech might be in the run game might actually have a little better personnel than Florida, Florida state does. Uh, I think, you look at Virginia Tech's running back coming into the, into the into the North Carolina game was averaging 12 yards a carry. Florida State's not done that against anybody. Now they've actually their schedule so far has been pretty tough, but even against Jacksonville State they weren't averaging 12 yards a carry. Uh, and their offensive line, the, the shocker of the year in Tallahassee is that their offensive line has actually gotten to some level of competence in the last couple of weeks, they they've actually been, they've not been a real weakness this year, even though you'll still hear people talk about it. If you watch the film, James Blackman, the first few weeks, he was holding on to the football four and five seconds at times. And then he gets sacked and you're like, well, geez, that's not on the offensive line. Their line's been okay. But I think Virginia tech's line was probably a little better. And I think Virginia tech's backs overall, probably just a little better And their quarterbacks. They've got more quarterbacks and a little bit more versatility from that position. Uh, the one place where I think Florida State's a little better than what Flor- than what North Carolina just faced is at the wide receiver position. Even without Terry, they've got a couple guys who can who can beat you down the field and and have some speed. I mean, it's Florida State; they're always going to have somebody at the receiver position who can who can at least threaten you. And they've got a few of those guys, uh, but that's that's basically where they're at offensively. Uh, so, I think they can give them some trouble. But I think with Vohasic on the field as well this week, and I, I think he's expected to play at this point. Uh, that that also helps tip the balance a little bit so that it's not quite as, as bad a matchup as Virginia tech was in that, in that regard. Greg Chasserat was a non-factor against Virginia tech. And I listened to some of the Virginia tech post game and some of their coordinators and they specifically designed it that way. I mean, what's Jay Bateman got to do to get Surratt loose for lack of a better way of putting it? Well, I think it will help that, that uh, we've, we think Raymond Vahasek, uh is probably going to be able to play, which will be a, a big boon for, for North Carolina up front. Um, but that's what Jay does. I mean, Jay's, Jay's very good at looking what teams do against him and adjusting. Um, and so it's also kind of a matter of, you know, if teams are going to dedicate their resources to trying to take one player out of, out of play, other guys have to step up. Um, and I think that's, that's part of the issue. But not having Vahasek up front last week clearly hurt uh, they just don't have a lot of options there in the middle and you need a guy like that and um, if Ray is able to go as we expect him to be able to play uh, that changes things and that that makes it a lot easier for, for Chaz to uh, have a bigger impact 
but you know, Bateman will learn from that and Bateman will figure out, okay, you know, they, they did this to take him away. I'm curious to see what Jason says, uh, but you can use, you can really use uh, Surratt in a lot of different ways. And one thing when you, you kind of go back through and look at the game and where North Carolina has success, uh, you know, Tamon Fox and Tyrone Hopper, they were very successful off the edge. And so, you know, what does that mean for Shrat? Not exactly sure if you want to put him there a little bit more, but there's, there's a various amount of options that you can use with a guy as talented as Chaz is. Jason, what's your thought there on how Bateman gets Chaz heavily involved in this one? I mean, if Virginia Tech's got to take a guy and use it on Surratt, then that takes away a lot. But can Florida State accomplish that? Anything you've seen from them this year? Well, I mean, it's a different situation than with, with Virginia Tech. I mean, what Virginia Tech basically did is they they used some multi-tight end sets and things like that to basically be able to have an extra guy in the box that they could that they could uh, at least – a lot of what Bateman does. So, so backing this up a little bit, a lot of what Bateman's doing up front is basically trying to keep Chaz clean by, and making him you – know, Jimmy Johnson used to call this back in his defense. He used to call it a hitman. So you have one guy who on your front, they don't have a blocker accounted for, like just by numbers or by alignment, they can't actually get a guy to him. And then he doesn't have necessarily one gap. He can just kind of flow to wherever, wherever that gap's going to be and make the play. And Jay's been using some of that with, uh, with, with Surratt, basically trying to designate him as the unblocked guy. Uh, now, Virginia Tech did a combination of things. They used some multi-tight end sets. So when you go, say, a tight end and an H-back on the same side, you can do some things in terms of making sure you have a lead blocker for a linebacker on that side, or maybe you know, you're, you're pulling them across the other side to get an extra guy on, on that box player. You're basically taking, you're, you're making sure that they can't have him unblocked. Uh, and the other thing that Virginia Tech did on that is when you run the quarterback, you have an additional blocker. You just do. It's the numbers. And so if, you've got, if they've got seven guys in the box and you've got your five offensive linemen and, say, an H-back and a running back, well, okay, there's your, there's your seven to match up. And then your safety is equal to the quarterback. Well, the problem is that if they run the quarterback, that's an eighth ball carrier, and now they can actually block your seventh guy, who otherwise would be the unblocked guy, with the, with the running back. And that's a lot of what Virginia Tech did this week, this last week, is that they used the quarterback run threat. And it's see, you don't just have to run the quarterback to get that threat, right? The fact that you do run the quarterback means that you have to have someone who accounts for the quarterback in the running game. So even if the quarterback hands it off, that unblocked guy still has to go with the quarterback. And so that's one of the ways that they, that they accounted for Surratt. And I expect to see Florida State do a lot of the same stuff to do that, especially in the quarterback run game. Uh, the problem is that Florida State doesn't have the tight ends that North Carolina did. They've got one tight end who's really a, a, a good receiver more than he is a blocker. He's not a full like, – he's, he's more of a, a hybrid receiver. Their, their pro projected starter at the beginning of the year who was a transfer from UCLA, uh, he, he blew his knee out in, in fall camp. And their starter from last year is now playing at Georgia as a transfer. Uh, so they're really thin at, at, at tight end, and they don't really have the ability – to add some guys to the box to, to cause some problems the same way that Virginia Tech did on, in terms of gap control and all that. Again, it's just telling you how limited the Florida State roster is. They just, there, there are some really thin positions uh, that, that they have there. But I do expect them to use the quarterback run game in particular to try to neutralize what Chaz does. And Vahasek certainly is not going to allow his only blocker get to the second level like happened a few times when Carolina was, when Chaz was getting swallowed like, up. Yeah, if you've got a guy like uh, Vohasek who can take two gaps at once, oftentimes they'll two-gap him, they'll put him straight over the center and give him both A-gaps. Now you don't have to worry about there being – you know, you, that basically gives you an extra, extra guy, right? Mm -hmm. So the guy that was unblocked, you now have to commit a second guy to essentially because that one guy's taken up two. And Jason, one thing we haven't talked about is Florida State's defensive front is awfully talented, but they have not played that way thus far this season. What's the issue there? It, it's a baffling thing, to be honest. I mean, and coming into the season, I was one of those who, who thought they had a real chance of having one of the best defensive lines in the conference. And, and you look at, on paper, they're starting two five-stars. 
on the defensive line. Two five stars and two high four stars on your defensive line, backed up by a series of four stars. That should be a recipe for a good defensive line. And they have been, I mean, it's been, it's been embarrassing watching these guys. And I, I posted to the Inside Carolina Tar Pit message board, I posted a, a little analysis of um, Florida State playing against Miami. And you watch, they've got a 315-pound defensive tackle who came into the season on draft boards. You know, he was, he was a you know, guy that most people thought he'd probably leave early after this season. Uh, he actually almost left early after last season. 315-pound defensive tackle, and he got single-blocked by Brevin Jordan, the tight end from Miami, despite having inside leverage. And you go, how does that – how do you let that happen? You've got 50 pounds on this guy. You play defensive tackle, and you're going to let him single-block you and turn you out of the hole? And that's been happening to Florida State defensively across the board. Marvin Wilson came into the season. I think he was in Mel Kuyper's top 10 players overall. And he has been invisible all season. I mean, he's not made a play yet. And you go, man, what is going on there? And it's not clear. My, I've got some suspicions. It, it appears to me that some of these guys did not do the work that they needed to during, during the, uh, the months off uh, without team-led stuff during COVID. Uh, some teams did better than others. And some of these guys, to my eye, look fat and out of shape. And they are slow off the ball. And then you look at some fundamentals on some things. And those fundamentals are playing high and, and all these things that basically just get you driven back, they all work together. And then you combine that this is, and I talked about this, this was one of the reasons that I picked uh, North Carolina in the preseason to beat Florida State, was this is arguably the worst year ever to be a first year head coach at the power five level, because you're having to try to turn a, a program around and install your own systems and, and flip culture and all of that without having a spring practice without having access to anybody during the summer, you, you know, without all of the normal things that you put in place, without having your strength guy working with these guys day after day during the summer. And you can really see that on Florida state's defense. They're out of gaps. Even when they're in the proper gap, you're seeing their defensive line on skates. And it, it's just a mixture of all of that. And when you have guys that aren't playing their assignments, well, that are playing too high and are fat and out of shape, that's a recipe for some really, really bad run defense, and that's been Florida State so far this season. Should make for interesting, uh, interesting running attack for North Carolina. Arguably the two best running backs in the in the, in the country, uh, the best pair, or arguably the best pair of running backs in the country for North Carolina against that run defense. It, that that uh, that's a good recipe for Carolina. Exactly. Let's uh, flip it to the predictions. Uh, I mean, we've talked a lot in this podcast about. Not specifically the game, but this last segment. It basically, North Carolina needs to do what they do on offense and, and you know, contain Florida State's quarterback. I, I think you're right. Running quarterbacks have always given North Carolina a problem, give a lot of teams a problem. So that'll be a key. Yeah, everybody problems. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, and I think Carolina's defensive backfield, even uh, limited in the bodies back there can have some success on that end. But Greg, I'll, I'll come to you first. Now I can't remember our preseason prediction podcast at this point, but I'm pretty sure that Florida state might've been in the L column for more than one person in that pre prediction uh, podcast. What sayeth you for this one? Oh yeah. Yeah. Florida state was certainly uh, in the discussion for an upset being in Tallahassee. Uh, yeah. That, does not look like a good pick at this point in time. Um, <laughs> I do think it'll be a competitive game. Uh, I do think North Carolina pulls away kind of late. So I've got North Carolina winning this one, 42-24. So is it a backdoor cover or is it a, a straight out? Yeah, let's go backdoor cover. All right. North Carolina so, has already done that once this year. So let's, uh, let's give them credit and say they do it again. Jason Staples, what happens down in Tallahassee? Uh, what, how many fans are in there? 10, 12,000? 13 or so, I think. Yeah, 25%. I think 13. Oh, yeah. yeah, so at least Carolina will get some, uh, so a little bit of blowback from the opposing fans. But what do you think happens? That's if those fans are there all four quarters. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's another, another issue there. But, um, yeah, this one, I'm going to stick with my preseason – prediction which was that North Carolina wins the game and I still feel pretty comfortable about that um Florida State can beat this North Carolina team I mean with the turnover two here or there you know 
get the momentum going right, get a little bit of belief, get a couple things fixed in, on the run defensive front where Florida State has been atrocious all season. And suddenly this, this becomes a ball game because Florida State is one of the few teams in the conference that has the, the players in the secondary to be able to cover North Carolina reasonably well, you know, at corner and, and uh, a little bit less so at safety. They, they can match up a little bit in the back end better than most teams that Carolina is going to play. But the real issue to me is that North Carolina runs the football about as well as Notre Dame does. And if you watch the Notre Dame-Florida State game, Florida State couldn't stop Notre Dame's running game pretty much when Notre Dame wanted to run it, they were able to run it. <laughs> and that, that image, and I've gone and broken that game down. I do the same thing on the Florida State side that I do a lot with, the, with Inside Carolina where I break down the game and I look at, you know, what's going on in each play. And there's some stuff that they can fix to get it better, but I don't see that happening in one week. I think North Carolina is going to be able to run for 250-plus in this game. And you don't lose a bunch of games when you're running for 250-plus yards on the ground. Uh, I think North Carolina is able to, to maintain, a, maintain a decent lead through this. be interesting if they can get out to an early lead to see how, whether they can essentially demoralize a Florida State team that's pretty fragile still. Uh, I think it'll be closer through most of the game. Uh, I think Florida State will fight, but I've got I've got North Carolina winning forty five to thirty one. Ooh, thirty one points for Florida State. That's interesting. I'm on. Yeah, I think I can't remember what I picked. I think I had Carolina winning this one. I always pick low scores, and then Carolina goes out and scores a couple touchdowns in the first quarter and gets it rolling um, like they did against Virginia Tech. I'm gonna go forty one to seventeen. Carolina uh, turnovers are the if, if Carolina loses the turnover battle, it could be close. Um, but I just think they're rolling. And like you said, Jason, Florida State's just not not the Florida State of old. They're more like, you know, Miami. They're fragile. Maybe Miami and Florida State's uh, – maybe they've flipped this season. I don't know. Carolina 41-17. So, we got three wins. I'll be on the Inside Carolina Live show. We'll have a segment with Greg Barnes. Hope to have a live segment with Jason Staples on Saturday. Starts at 4.30 on 97.9 CHL, chapelboro.com, stream it. If you've got a smart speaker, just say play WCHL. It'll actually start playing. It works because I had to tell the wife to listen to her man by doing that. Jason and Greg, the Game Plan Podcast. It's always been fun, my friends. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for listening to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com. Brought to you by johnnytshirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. Are you still listening? Good. Take a deep breath. You needed a break. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. So, yes... You can literally stream a stream. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation.